Patients at Risk, a discussion of the dangers that patients face when physicians are replaced with non-physician practitioners. I'm your host and the co-author of the book, Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare, Dr. Rebecca Bernard. The COVID-19 pandemic created both challenges and opportunities in the healthcare sector. One major winner, telehealth startup companies offering virtual medical care, including to patients with mental illness. But instead of hiring physicians, these companies often hire nurse practitioners to care for some of the most vulnerable and complex patients in our nation. These companies got an even bigger boost when the DEA relaxed the requirements for having a face-to-face visit and allowed online nurse practitioners to basically prescribe controlled substances. So we are really here to talk about what is going on with that and why that might be dangerous for patients. And nobody better can discuss this than our guest today. She's a psychiatrist, Dr. Ziba Rizai. Dr. Rizai, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for having me. Dr. Rizai, tell us about yourself and your background. I'm double board certified in both general psychiatry and uh, brain injury medicine. So work with a lot of neuro rehab, neuropsychiatric patients. I work in both the private sector as well as with some organizations. Um, I have my own private practice in the Lakeway community and also serve as medical director of a couple of places, including an adolescent facility and neuro rehab and work with a residential treatment facility. So target a lot of populations. Um, Additionally, do some legal work on the side. Wow. Well, thank you so much for what you do because your job is so important, you know, taking care of patients with mental illness and substance abuse issues and especially kids. You know, I just, I'm so grateful to you that you went through all the years of training and remind our audience, what does it take to become a psychiatrist? What is your educational background? So in order to become a psychiatrist, you obviously have to take the general medical pathway that all doctors, all medical doctors and DOs take, tails four years of basic medical education and medical school. Prior to that, of course, you have to meet the requirements to get in and pass certain testing measures. You choose to go to psychiatry, which is at minimum four years. Now, depending on if you want to get a subspecialty, that can entail an additional year or two. So in my case, it was four years of medical school, four years of residency, and an additional subspecialty in brain injury medicine. So it is at least eight to nine years of education. That is a long time, but it's really necessary for you to become an expert in helping these patients that really often tend to be very complex. And one of the things we're talking about today is the fact that physicians with the type of expertise that you have as a psychiatrist are being replaced by, in some cases, nurse practitioners that are allowed to graduate with just 500 hours of clinical training. And I think that it's become particularly concerning right now because in the last two years with the COVID-19 pandemic, we have just seen these online telehealth, mental health companies spring up left and right. And tell me, what do you know about these companies? Some of them are called Cerebral or Done. There's about a half dozen of them out now. We have seen a surge of online, if you will, often multi-clinician portals. So they don't just target medical, but they also target often psychotherapy. However, since the pandemic, they have had a lot of leeway in what they can offer. I'm sure that there 
are good elements to this. We know that there are a lot of patients out there that need help and that especially need mental health care. But what are some of the concerns that you and other people are seeing about these types of telehealth programs? Unfortunately, a majority of my interactions have been very negative. The patients that I have inherited, if you will, from these platforms, these online platforms are all have often been significantly mismanaged. So what I'm seeing is these platforms are almost always run by nurse practitioners and physician assistants. My experience has also shown that a lot of these um, nurse practitioners and physician assistants are very new to practice. I have had at minimum five encounters where I have followed through and found out the specific training of that particular PA or NP. And in all five cases, the training was less than a year, meaning that they had just gone out of, if you will, their their 500 hours of training in the past year prior to practicing with Cerebral, for example. And then in addition, there has been significant concern of putting patients on very inappropriate medications uh, with very inappropriate evaluation times, um, no backup testing, no medical clearances. I mean, the, the list goes on of what has been mismanaged. It just doesn't seem, first of all, logical. The way that these companies are, are billing their services, they make it seem like, oh, all you have to do is just go online, fill out a form, we'll connect you with a quote prescriber because that's what they call the people. And then you have a 30-minute visit. It looks like that's pretty much the way a new visit is. And then in 30 minutes, they claim, you know, you can get an ADD prescription, quote, the same day. Now, first of all, have you ever, would you say that it's typical to diagnose ADD in 30 minutes on a phone call or web visit? Is that even standard of care? Absolutely not. Unfortunately, treatment of attention deficit disorder is actually fairly complex, there are a lot of conditions that can mask or mimic ADHD that are have nothing to do with ADHD. That's the first problem. The second problem, unfortunately, as most listeners know, is that a lot of our student population and even some of our employees um, want to enhance their performance. And these are cognitive enhancing drugs with high potential for abuse and dependence. Just to give you an example of how I do Um, my evaluation of ADHD, I have to at least visit with that patient for an hour, an hour and a half. I almost always require either prior collateral information from previous physicians regarding that diagnosis, meaning years of treatment, or I put them through at least four to six hours of neuropsychological testing. So, you know, people are going to say, yeah, but do I really need to do all that? Like, what's the big deal? I just, I've taken it before. I I need it. It makes me feel better. Why can't we just give it to them if that's what they want? The issue with these medications are they're highly addictive. And it's not even that the patient has any intention of having addiction to these medications. These are habit-forming drugs that require higher doses and higher doses as you go along treatment. An inappropriate use of these drugs in certain populations can absolutely be devastating. I'll give an example is there was a suspected case in a a cerebral patient that was given inappropriate, inadequate doses of stimulants. This patient likely had an underlying either psychotic disorder or bipolar disorder that was not appropriately diagnosed 
and they engaged in a certain activity in the aftermath of high dosage that led to their mortality. They have passed since. And um, of course, mom is in a state of shock from all of this. But this is an example of how a script for Adderall that's simple can be heavily mismanaged. Well, that's exactly it. And you know, when you're a physician, especially a psychiatrist, and you've had years and years of training, you have the opportunity to see all the things or many of the things that can go wrong. And if you only have a very brief amount of training, then you might feel a little bit more cavalier about it because you've never seen anything. I think for you and me, if you see a patient that gets pushed into a manic episode or develops psychosis because of a prescription for Adderall, and they do something that harms them or harms someone else, potentially irreversibly, that's something that you never forget. And it makes you have a lot of respect for the medication. And I think that's where the shortcuts are such an issue, because how could you in only 500 hours have experienced, I mean, you don't even know what's normal, much less what's not normal with that amount of training. Am I wrong about that? Absolutely. The world of neuropsychiatry is a very complex world. You have to know the specific, you really have to get to know the patient. And the biggest issue with these companies are they are not doing their due diligence and getting enough history, enough background, collaborating with the team to know this, the complexity of the patient. And it's, it's a big problem. Do you think so much of that just comes back to the fact that it's about making money and profits and moving people through as quickly as possible? 100%. Part of the problem with these companies have been that they are not run or even managed by physicians or people that have any medical background. And therefore, quality of care has not been established. My understanding and my work with Cerebral, it has um, entailed that they're often pushed, even prescribers, quote unquote, that they themselves feel under pressure to perform and produce results in 30 minutes, if you will, the results meaning money for the company. Yeah, I've seen news reports about that. And you know, one of the other things that I'm hearing a lot about, first of all, if you go on Cerebral's website, and you just look at their um, team, they say, I scrolled and scrolled and scrolled. And actually, I ended up counting uh, how many nurse practitioners they had on there. And it was about 1500 nurse practitioners listed. And there were five physicians. Uh, four psychiatrists and one internal medicine doctor. Now, we know that in about half the states of the union that you have to have a supervising physician to be a nurse practitioner. So how do you think that's being managed? And have you heard about Cerebral trying to recruit like crazy to find physicians to quote unquote supervise? Yes, I actually have a very good example of a case in which I contacted both the nurse practitioner and the physician. Unfortunately, this case was an egregious case of clinical mismanagement. The degree of concern that it entailed for me was just shocking. But in this particular case, the attending, if you will, the supervising physician to this brand new nurse practitioner who had been off her 500 clinical hours by a couple of months and admitted to me that she only had a 20-minute conversation with the patient. The patient was put on two very high doses of benzodiazepines concurrently after giving birth. 
So she was postpartum, never had any experience with benzodiazepines and had been put on very high doses and was was actively also breastfeeding. I spoke to the attending physician. The attending physician had no idea about this particular case. He was not a psychiatrist. He was an internal medicine doctor um, that was practicing far, far away from where she was at. And basically had no idea. And when I brought up my concerns, both were rather put off, meaning did not even understand the gravity of how how awful that situation was. Yeah. So just to break it down, two ben- benzodiazepines are sedatives, anxiety type medications. They tend to be used for anxiety or for sleep. Uh, because of that, they can be sedating medications. They are controlled substances because they can be addictive. And really, can there's no reason why you would use two benzos, which are in the same class, in the same category. Why would you even use two together? And do you feel like they didn't even understand even like that they were in the same class? I honestly, I am not sure what what the reasoning for that was. What was interesting is later on, I requested records from Cerebral regarding basically seeing why two were used. And in the records, one of the benzodiazepines was completely eliminated, meaning that they had never even recorded that they gave two benzodiazepines. However, in the prescription monitoring program, both were prescribed by the same um, nurse practitioner. However, the records were in contradiction, meaning the records were, were I don't want to use the word falsified, but they were not accurate. It just didn't make sense. And then so you have a a mother, a brand new mom, she's uh, nursing her baby, and now you're giving her two sleeping pills, potentially uh, that, you know, that could actually be life threatening that and we also have to factor in whether the medication could cross into the infant. There's just so many things to think about that could be hazardous. And it sounds like when you even just tried to provide some education, which I applaud you for, by the way, because on our website, our our physician group, Physicians for Patient Protection, this is one of the reasons that I found out about what was happening across the country is all these different doctors were saying, oh my gosh, I just had a patient and I can't believe what they were prescribed. Or can you believe that this happened? And we're talking to each other about it. And And so to take the time to reach out and try to educate people, but then you find out that they, it's not always very well accepted. It sounds like in this case, they didn't even realize the gravity of what they were doing. Right. Absolutely. And what was uh, the worst is that this patient was only seen one time, one time in the six month that prior that I had seen her. And by the time I had seen her, she had gotten other scripts from other doctors, and she was fully dependent in a matter of six months to benzodiazepines to the point that when we saw her in a facility setting, the only recommendation that we could give her is to go to rehabilitation for substance use. So So she got addicted to benzodiazepines in that short period of time because that happens uh, from prescriptions by a a new nurse practitioner that was dispensed online. Correct. And they were never seen, right. They were never seen, never followed up. She was charged monthly fee uh, for getting these scripts. Never again saw a nurse practitioner, never was followed up. And her account was charged even in the aftermath of her dismissal. 
So it was an egregious case that unfortunately to this day, I don't know whether recovery ensued or not, but this particular patient was a full-blown addict as a brand new mom in a matter of six months. You have to wonder about liability. When I was looking at reviewing some of these different websites, I saw an awful lot of disclaimers. For example, I was looking at, I think it was Ophelia, which is one of these new programs that's for people that are trying to get off of opioids. And by the way, on a separate note, you know, we all are talking about the opioid crisis that clinicians had something to do with because we prescribed very liberally in part because we were told that we really had to. We had to take pain more seriously. We were promised that opioids would not cause addiction, certain ones. And of course, fast forward to today, we have this opioid crisis. And so a lot of people are wondering, well, is the next crisis going to be the Adderall slash benzo crisis? And, and what you're telling me is making me really think that. But now there's a companies that to try to help people get off of addictive drugs. They're substituting other medications. Um, so I was looking on Ophelia and they have all these disclaimers that says, we are not responsible for the diagnosis. We are only a platform that connects patients to clinicians and the clinicians are the ones that are liable. So I guess my question is, do you think that in a case like this, a patient would have a, any kind of recourse to get any any type of justice for being basically made into a drug addict. So that's the that's the very dangerous and concerning theme if you will that we're seeing with these platforms is that they are trying to distance themselves as any sort of clinical based program. We're just an online portal. However, if you look at the actual company setup, again, there's a lot of pressure from corporate non clinical-based administrators in performing, in enacting certain measures that are all clinical. And so in reality, I absolutely feel that there is a lot of responsibility and liability for the non-clinical administrators, the, the executives, all of them. Regardless, things are being handled with a level of carelessness that would not be replicated in a clinical setting or a community-based setting or in a setting that for example, we strive to be in as physicians. Yeah, you just have to imagine that you're we're going to be seeing a lot of advertisements from attorneys, you know, in the near future, have you been treated by, you know, because you just see the potential for danger. And it's really sad because these patients are suffering many. I mean, if you're having postpartum depression, you're anxious. I mean, I'm also deeply concerned when I see things about patients with bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, really serious mental illness being pseudo managed by non-physicians. Are you seeing cases like that? Absolutely. The rise of the nurse practitioner and mid-levels, again, often supported by these platforms, but also supported by companies, again, that are uh, not providing the right supervision is rampant. It's in our communities. And um, unfortunately, we see a lot of mismanagement. I have, in, again, inherited a lot of patients that have gone into very devastating recourse, often leading to hospitalizations, increasing morbidity, and unfortunately, in some cases, mortality because of that. So, so yes, it's a big, big concern. The, le the less physician involvement we have with a lot of these companies that are just simply put trying to make money, the more destruction we're seeing in terms of what our patients are going through. You know, I imagine that physicians that choose to work for these companies, maybe they have this idea like, I really want to help patients get access. But do you think that maybe 
physicians need to just say, no, we're not going to participate in programs that aren't being done to the, the right level to make sure that patients are safe? Absolutely. I do strongly believe that us physicians have to take our oath seriously. And our oath is not just a direct oath, it's an oath to also be able to supervise correctly and be in the right setting. The practice of medicine is delicate. I mean, every time I think about each patient, I think about this as someone's mother, sister, daughter, uh, vice versa, you know, brother, father, it's something that we have to take absolutely seriously. The more we agree to supervise incorrectly, inappropriately, the more we're contributing to this destructive pattern that's occurring in healthcare, unfortunately. And so as a result, a lot of us doctors have opted to just directly take care of our patients and not necessarily supervise. Yeah, I think that if there's any doubt about whether the person that you're supervising is, I guess I would say, like, why would you supervise somebody when you don't know what their education is, what their background is? And if you're not truly like looking at what they're doing, I just can't understand how somebody would give up their license and, and, and take that, take on that kind of responsibility. It just kind of boggles my mind. What advice would you give to patients who are thinking about using these online services or what can they do if they're just trying to get good mental health care? My biggest advice is I, 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 I truly believe there's nothing that replaces that one-on-one clinical actual contact with a physician. I would, I would strongly advise all patients to be in a setting where they can at minimum have access to a physician um, upon the request, if they are willing to see a mid-level again, please be aware that this, you know, the, the, the gap in training is significant between mid-levels and physicians. And there are great nurse practitioners out there that are being supervised appropriately by um, physicians. And if that's the setting you're going to, that's appropriate. Otherwise, I really strongly believe that you have to have one-on-one contact in a setting, be evaluated appropriately, ensure that all your um, history is taken. A 30-minute appointment, simply put, is not appropriate. Seeing a nurse practitioner that is brand new without access to a physician is not appropriate. I totally agree. And the other thing I think about is one of the aspects that these companies promote is they'll say, oh, it's so much cheaper to use our service. Well, number one, I don't think that that's true. Well, you're shaking, you're nodding, you're shaking your head. So tell me what your thoughts are on that. Absolutely not. I have all these cerebral patients that I have inherited have regretted every investment they've made. Um, and in fact, unfortunately, they have a model that's often subscription based, which means that they tell you, oh, well, you know, we'll charge you this much. And you have unlimited access to whoever, which is absolutely inaccurate. All you have is an individual that is quote unquote, a case manager. And there has been so many, you can just go online and search and you'll see the extent of difficulties that they have in even reaching clinicians. But secondarily, they bill your insurance the same the same way any other physician office would. And ultimately, I can almost vouch to all every single patient that I have seen has said, I wish I would have just taken that extra money and spent it appropriately seeing a patient a physician in the community. Yeah, I mean, in the long run, you end up saving money by getting the correct diagnosis by getting on the correct treatment plan. And not just wasting all this time and potentially harming yourself. You know, I'm a a direct primary care doctor and I specialize in patients without health insurance. A lot of mine have high deductible plans. 
Now, when I'm ta- when I'm thinking about extremely poor poverty level patients, that's a separate issue, and I think that needs to be addressed. But I take care of a lot of patients that are are middle class. They, it's hard for them to afford health insurance because it's so, so darn expensive. But it's not co- completely out of the realm of possibilities to find a cash pay psychiatrist. In my community, we have many of them. And yes, the first visit might cost you $250 or $300. And then your follow-up visits might cost you $150 or $200. But once you get a correct diagnosis and treatment, you're not seeing them every month. You're potentially maybe every three months or six months or whatever it needs to be. But I think that patients need to look at their health as an investment. And just like we like to spend our money on all sorts of things for our enjoyment, and we should, we need to invest and spend money on things that matter, which is our health. And that means finding the right physician and, um, you know, not taking shortcuts, because in the long run, it's just going to hurt you. Absolutely. And keep in mind that a lot of a lot of patients that end up doing that, they are mismanaged. So in the case of that particular patient, well, after six months of visits and paying monthly, now she has to spend a lot of money going into rehab to recover from this. And those oh, yeah. are exponentially more expensive. Yes. And I'm sure it probably didn't help her relationship and her jobs uh, and, her, and, and all these different things. And if you get into the, you know, God forbid, the, the criminal system, the justice system, that's expensive. I mean, this is not something that you want take chances on. In our last couple of minutes, Dr. Ziba, do you have any other information you'd like to share? Any other anecdotes you want to share with our listeners? First of all, thank you for having me, um, Dr. Bernard, on this. My biggest pointer that I want to get across to uh, to our patients and our listeners is that please ensure that you take care of your mental health in the right way. Again, there are, especially with the rise of mental health crisis, we have seen such a boom in inappropriate clinicians of all levels. I mean, we have anything from coaches that are claiming they have trainings to, again, mid-level care nurse practitioners that, that have no experience. Just ensure that whoever you're seeing is either a physician or being appropriately supervised under a physician who is the right specialty, because that can harm you and your mental health. Again, your brain health and mental health is of utmost importance, just like any other organ system. And so I really appreciate this program that educates uh, our listeners, because I think there's a lot of our areas of potential pitfall for our listeners and for patients. In regard 100%. To you know, I'm a huge fan of psychiatrists. I think every patient needs a primary care physician. And if, especially if your primary care physician feels that your mental health condition requires another level of expertise, then that's a psychiatrist to me. And I also thank you for mentioning coaches. Absolutely. It's perpetuating the downgrading of expertise. We're just in an area. Yeah, we're just in an era where you can be whatever you want with very little expertise and time and resources and pretend to be that. But please remember, you're dealing with people's lives. And as a result of what we've seen in cases like cerebral, I am directly dealing with multitude of cases of, again, patient with very severe bad outcomes. And so this is not something we can take lightly. So I think programs like this are so crucial and I can't I can't thank you enough, Dr. Bernard, for 
um, advocating for all of our patients. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you to our listeners. If you've enjoyed this podcast, I encourage you to get the book Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare. It's available at Amazon and at barnesandnoble.com. And if you would like to get more involved in advocating for physician-led care and truth and transparency among healthcare practitioners, please join our group, Physicians for Patient Protection. You can find us at our website, physiciansforpatientprotection.org. Thanks so much, and we'll see you on the next podcast. Thanks so much, and we'll see you on the next podcast. Mm-hmm.